Our preaching passage this morning, morning comes from Psalm 20. I'll begin reading in verse 1. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. May we shout for joy over your salvation and in the name of our God set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. This is God's word. Amen. Please be seated. The psalm we're looking at this morning has a profoundly important point that is intended to cause us this morning to rejoice. So my prayer as I've been thinking through how to preach this is that it would have the impact of of joy. And you, you'll know uh, that that is the intention of the psalm. When it has here in verse 5, it talks about shouts, uh, shout for joy. May we shout for joy over your salvation. And so uh, the, the purpose of the psalm is to give us that kind of response. So I suppose I'll know whether I've succeeded if at the end everyone stands up and goes, Yes! The theme of the psalm is quite simply the following. Because the king wins the victory, so shall we. Because the king, and in the context of the book of the Psalms, the king is King David, but the fulfillment of King David is the, the anointed king, and the anointed means the Messiah, that's the Hebrew word for anointed, the Messiah, the Christ. Jesus, as we saw last week when we looked at Psalm 2, the, the book of Psalms is constructed in such a way that it reconnects our emotions to the Word in order to reconnect them to the Christ, the anointed, the King. King David here in the immediate context, that's what the psalm is referring to, King David, his victory, in his victory is our victory, but the fulfillment of that is the ultimate King, the anointed one, um, King Jesus. So when it says here, fam- very famously, at the end of uh, the psalm, or famously for English people, O Lord, save the king. Of course, the English national anthem is God save the queen. And that really comes from uh, Psalm 20, verse 9. Um, it's not about that. So this is not saying uh, God save the king of Britain if there was a king, or queen of Britain if there was a queen, nor is it talking about the political president of a, of a country like America talking about King David, who was the king of a theocracy of God's people, and the fulfillment of King David in King Jesus. And so the, the message this morning, that, as I say, is intended to cre- create that kind of feeling like, yay, wow, amazing, praise God, you know, joy. Um, the theme is because God's king is victorious, 
so shall we be. Now, you've got to um, understand the context here. So the context here is that they're facing a day of trouble. It's like a really bad situation. And that it's before victory. So they're not actually there yet. It's about to happen. And they're getting themselves ready. And yet they have that kind of confidence. I don't know what the similar sort of feeling would be in our situation. I was thinking maybe it's a little bit similar to taking exams. If you're a college student, it feels like a day of trouble. <laughs> I've got to take an exam today or next week or something like that. I remember when I was at school, we, uh, a friend of mine called Pat had the annoying ability to have an extremely good short-term memory. And you probably had friends like that too. It used to drive me crazy because I would spend all week studying and he just wouldn't bother. And then right before the test, he'd just look at his notes and he'd turn up and he'd get 100%. It was fine. It's an amazing short-term memory. And so when I looked at my exams as a day of trouble, I think he thought, no problem. I'll just look at my notes and I'll remember everything. I'll get it all right. That was never the case for me. I had to work really hard at it. I don't know what the equivalent of a day of trouble would be for you. Maybe it's something like an exam. Maybe it's a health issue. Maybe it's the global scene that we're facing today. Maybe it's other things. For them, it was a particular context that we'll look at and explore. But this day of trouble, and the day, in the day of trouble, before the day of trouble, looking at the day of trouble, about to get into it, they still have this confidence. Because God's king is victorious, therefore we shall be. And Psalm 20 and Psalm 21 are actually a pair of Psalms. They go together. Psalm 21 is looking back at after the victory and celebrating after the victory. Psalm 20 is looking ahead but with massive confidence that there will be victory. Because God's king will win, we will win. It's going to happen. Now, why is this an important uh, message for us to think through today? A number of different reasons. First of all, because the Psalms as a whole are intended to reconnect our emotions to the Word, to the Christ, and when we're facing a day of trouble, it can be easy for our emotions to become uh, stirred up and anxious and, and, and all that, and we need to be, at that moment, when we're facing a day of trouble, we need to be trained, our emotions to be trained, to connect to the Word, to connect to the Christ. So it's important for that reason. It's important that we have that, that training, the the, um, one of the most successful basketball coaches of any time is uh, the coach who is uh, coaching the women's basketball team at the University of Connecticut, the Huskies. I lived out in uh, Connecticut for a while, and of course he was you know, a big deal out in Connecticut, famous man. And he um, one time took his team uh, on a training trip actually to the um, U.S. Navy SEALs to see what they could learn from them. I and mean, it's one thing to play a basketball game and get ready for that. It's another thing to get ready for war. That's real trouble. And so what do you learn from the, the, the Navy SEALs? And one of the things he took away from them was the Navy SEALs apparently had a phrase which is, you don't rise to the occasion, you sink to the level of your training. So you have to be prepared in advance. And this is going to prepare us for the day of trouble, so that we're trained. It trains us to not be anxious and blown off course when we're facing a day of trouble. It will prepare us for that. But then, in addition, this is significant, this, this message here in the psalm, because it's teaching us a theological truth that is rarely taught. And that theological truth is that not 
only is it the case that as Christians we are more than merely individuals in our relationship to Jesus, but we're part of the community of the church, that is often taught these days, and rightly so. We're not merely individuals, we're part of the community of the church, but not only is that case, we're not merely a community, we're a kingdom with a king, and his victory, because we're a kingdom with a king, his victory means that we'll be victorious. We're not just a communitarian group, a community, we're a kingdom with a king, and his victory is our victory. And that, that gives us the kind of confidence and I hope the kind of joy that we should have at the end of this, looking at this psalm together. So let's look at it and see how it teaches us that because God's King is victorious, uh, therefore we will be. Uh, you can see that theme emphasized here by the beginning and the end of the psalm. So right at the beginning it says, may the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. And at the end, verse 9, may he answer us when he called. That's a context in which they have confidence. And actually, the, the, the translation in most of our Bibles kind of hides the deliberate repetition that the psalm intends at the beginning and the end. Uh, literally, in the Hebrew, it is, may he answer us on the day we call, mirroring, reflecting the language of the beginning, may he answer you in the day of trouble. So the day of trouble is the day when we call. It's that day. They're facing a specific context, a specific day, a specific time of trouble that they're looking at, and they're asking that God would answer us on the day, on that day, that day of trouble, when we call. What was that day? We don't know for sure, but in all likelihood, the context was as follows. From this psalm, we know that by this time, David, by the time the psalm was written, David was in Jerusalem, and the ark had been taken up to Jerusalem, because it says in verse 2, may he, that is God, send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. Zion is David's city, the city of Jerusalem, and the sanctuary is where the ark of the covenant is. So we know that the ark of the covenant, by the time of the writing of this psalm, was in Jerusalem. So he's, he's won that victory. He's now in Jerusalem and establishes the king, and yet there's another day of trouble about to happen. And that day of trouble almost certainly is Second Samuel chapter 10, when they're about to go into battle against the Syrians at the time. And they're facing that battle, and it's, a, it's going to be a serious battle because the Syrians outgun them, outmuscle them, have technology, technology that they do not have in their military capacities, and it's a real day of trouble. So we're told in, uh, in verse 7, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. And so in the context of the military pressure that Israel and the Old Testament felt from the surrounding nations at the time, the Syrians and other nations had chariots and horses. It was the, the latest technological innovation in military warfare, but the Israelites did not. Almost certainly the Israelites at the time fought on foot. They were foot soldiers. And so they're outgunned, outmuscled. The, the technology of the, of the surrounding nations about which they're uh, about to confront in battle uh, it looks like it's a real day of trouble. 
That's the context. So they're, they're in Jerusalem. David is established as the king. The ark has come to Jerusalem. And now there's a battle about to ensue that isn't a civil war between David and Saul, but is now between David and the kingdom and the surrounding nations at the time. And they have chariots. They have horses. They have uh, airplanes. They have tanks. And they're just, they've just got foot soldiers, and that's it. It's a day of trouble. And the amazing thing about this psalm, the more I thought about it, the more extraordinary it is that the time of its writing, before the victory, Psalm 21, the next psalm, celebrates the victory. But before the victory, they're confident. They know they're going to win. They have no doubt about it. Now, they're not there yet. They're saying, may he answer us. But there's a sense of celebration even previous to the victory. And that's because in a theological perspective, from a uh, spiritual perspective, they know that David is God's king. And they know he's going to win. May he answer us when we call. The Lord save the king. They know that they are going to win because they know that David is God's man. They're not merely individuals. and They're not merely a community. They're a kingdom with a king, and the king is God's king. And therefore, they're confident. They don't trust in chariots and horses. They trust in the name of the Lord our God. Therefore, they're confident because God's king is God's king. So at the top and the tail of the psalm, you have this context in the, which, in the middle of which there's this remarkable confidence. God's going to answer. We know it. I, uh, when I think of... Um, Days of trouble, I think of exams and tests. I also think of the, the Rocky movies, you know, Rocky Balboa before he gets into a ring and is going to get into, into a boxing match and the kind of confidence that he has. There's one moment, I think it's in Rocky V movies. I, I love the Rocky movies. I've been trying to persuade my son, my 10-year-old son, to watch them with me, but I haven't yet persuaded him. But we're going to get there one day. It's like we've got to start Rocky one and get all the way through. I think they're great. But Rocky V, there's this moment when Rocky is talking to his son, and his son is unsure whether he can um, survive, not survive, but whether he can thrive, whether he's going to be successful. And Rocky looks at his son and says, look, this life is not a life of roses. There's going to be trouble and difficulty in this life. You're going to get hit. But what counts is not how hard you can hit back, but how hard you can get hit and get up again. Now, that's just, you know, boxing and Rocky Balboa. But here there's a confidence, a spiritual, based upon a spiritual reality, reflecting a theological framework that we're a kingdom with a king. In their context, King David. In our context, King Jesus. Because of that king, we don't have any doubts. We know we're going to win. He's the king. We don't trust in chariots and horses. We trust in the Lord. Even in the day of trouble. So the top and the tail, it emphasizes that. And then in the middle of, uh, of the psalm, there's this wonderful conversation that goes on between the king and his people. And it's this theological truth that's not often taught that we're not merely a community, we're a kingdom with a king. And so what you have in the first part of the psalm is God's people talking about God's king. So, may the Lord answer you, that is King David, in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you, 
That's uh, King David. They're talking about the king. Then verse 2, may he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. They're talking about King David. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. There's King David. The ark has got now gone to the temple and he's uh, leading God's people in worship. And he's uh, a pious, devoted, committed, faithful member of the, of, the, uh, of the covenant people of God. And they're saying, look, may God remember that you're that kind of person. Uh, may he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. What an amazing thing. For God's people to say about God's king, they're actually longing that the heart's desires of the king will be fulfilled in all his plans. Because of this theological truth that we're not merely individuals, nor are we merely a community, we're a kingdom with a king, and their success, God's people, is inextricably connected to his success. May God fulfill all your plans, King David, and fulfill all your desires. King David. And so, because of that, verse 5, may we shout for joy over your salvation. Salvation there reflecting the, the broader meaning of salvation. Not We think of salvation as merely sort of individualistic, uh, I've prayed a prayer kind of salvation, but salvation biblically has a much broader, bigger connotation, and it includes this, this day of trouble, the victory that will come. They say, may God save you in the sense of give you victory. Talking about King David. And in the name of our God, <clears throat> we will then shout over your salvation. And in the name of our God, set up our banners. That's the, that's the, the, the flag waving. It's like we won. We're going to have a parade. We're going to wave banners and get out flags and, and all that. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions, all your prayers. That's what they're all saying about, they're saying about David, the king. And then look, there's this conversation. Now King David speaks, verse 6. Now I know, David speaking, that the Lord saves his anointed. He's talking about the king in the third person, as kings sometimes did. His anointed. Of course, anointed in Hebrew is the word Messiah, which in Greek is the word Christ. And so for Christians who read the Bible, when they see anointed, they always think of the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ. David was anointed, and he is a figure, a type of the anointed one, the Christ, the Messiah. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. In other words, David's saying, I'm hearing these people wishing this for me, as I'm getting ready to lead you into battle against the Syrians with all their tanks and, and planes, with all their chariots and horses, but now I know I can sense and, yes, feel that you're with me, and I know that, again, I've, I've had it emphasized and underlined the truth that God will save his anointed, meaning David himself as the king. And then... Uh, he replies like that, and then together the king and the people, verse 7, some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we, now David and the people speaking together, we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They, that is those who are not following God, they collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. 
What counts is not how hard you hit, but how hard you get hit and get up again. We rise and stand upright. And then the people say, O Lord, save the king. And then all together the king and his people reply, May he answer us when we call. It's an amazing psalm. It's got this theological truth that we're not just individuals, we're a kingdom with a king. It's got this context of trouble. And I don't know what kind of trouble you may be facing. Maybe it's an exam, maybe it's health issues, maybe it's just anxiety about the global scene. You sense that we're in a day of trouble. And we shouldn't be surprised by that, should we? If We feel that because Jesus himself taught us that in this world we would face many difficulties. But he said, take heart, I have overcome the world. He's the king. He's overcome the world. You think, well, good for him. No, he's the king and we're in his kingdom because he's victorious, therefore we will be. Take heart, I have overcome the world. Well, Paul uh, taught the same to uh, Timothy describing how in the last days there'll be times of difficulties. There'll be days of difficulty in these last days in which we live. The last days, that is all the time from Jesus' ascending and sending his Holy Spirit. As uh, the Apostle Peter preached in Acts chapter 2, these are the last days. The Spirit has come. The last days when the message of the gospel goes out to the four corners of the earth. We are in the last days. We've been in the last days since the Spirit came at Pentecost. And in these last days, the Apostle Paul says there'll be a special times of difficulty. Why? Because the gospel is flourishing. It's gone from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. The gospel is growing and growing and growing. And at the same time, there's increasing spiritual opposition. And there'll be moments when those two clash, a special times of difficulty, a day of trouble. It will come. You'll have difficulties and troubles in this world. But take heart, Jesus says, I've overcome the world. May he answer you in the day of trouble. O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. So when you're facing these kind of troubles, these kind of difficulties, what you know now is because God's king has won the victory, his death and resurrection and ascension and sending the Spirit, it means that you are victorious. In other words, your victory is not primarily related to your behavior. Your victory is not primarily related to how good you are as a person. Your victory as a Christian is not primarily related to how clever you are, whether you've read all the right commentaries, whether you understand Greek and Hebrew. Your victory as a Christian is not primarily related to whether you fulfilled all the right classes in the adult communities at college church. Your victory, but well, you should, of course, but you, your victory is, is rooted in, established in, His victory. His victory. Oh Lord, save the King. Give the king victory. And then we'll shout for joy. Why? Because we're a kingdom with a king. And he's won. And therefore we will win. It's, I think it's mind-blowing. It should change every way you look at your life. You know, all these self-help books that tell you that the way to have victory is to follow this or that technique, to manage your time more effectively, to be… And then there are all the, 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 
books that tell you the way to have victory is to do this good thing or that good thing and all the rest. And here, the, the Bible's saying, actually, no, your victory is related to His. And if you're a Christian this morning, you're in Christ, and He's risen, and therefore in Him you spiritually have been raised from the dead, and one day you will, you will, on that day of trouble, the day of your death, which will come, you know you will raise, you will be risen from the dead, you will rise to see Him. Why? Not because you're a good person. Not because you know Greek or Hebrew. Not because you listened to Dr. Josh Moody's sermons for several years without falling asleep once. But because heroes were a kingdom with a king and were inextricably connected to him. And he won. And therefore we know we won. So, well, I need, I, need some, I need some help to put that into, into real practice this morning. Let me give that to you in just uh, a few uh, ways, three ways to put this into practice for us this morning. And here's the first. Don't, don't trust in… Don't trust… Let me just get a sip of water there. Don't trust in, in chariots. Look at verse 7. Some trust in chariots and some in horses. Now, there's nothing wrong with horses. There's nothing wrong with chariots. There's nothing wrong with money. There's nothing wrong with health. There's nothing wrong with being clever. There's nothing wrong with being handsome or beautiful. There's nothing wrong with having opportunities and education. All these things God can use. He can use chariots and horses if He gives you money and health. He can use all those things as you're generous, as you use your, your, your time for God and His kingdom, as you use your intellectual abilities to write books and to preach sermons and to do to, to evangelism, God can use all that, but you're not to trust that. It's so easy, isn't it, for those of us who are gifted, who have intellectual capacities and may be good at making money, to find that we end up trusting it. And we know that that's the case for, for when those things seem to be under threat, it deeply disturbs us. I remember when um, I was on, I was a little sick uh, at the end of last year, and as I've mentioned a couple of times, I've done quite a bit of reflecting on that since. One of the interesting things was when I had a lot of pain and I was under some morphine, as I think I may have mentioned a couple of weeks ago or something like that. I had some morphine and I, was, I had significant pain. And then I came out of hospital and I found that when I was on morphine, like my, you know, I've, I've had a lot of education down through my years and I've, I've always felt like I've had a pretty sharp brain and I enjoy that and I think God uses it. I can articulate and I can speak, and I can think, and I can write, and I can preach. I tell you, though, when, I, when you, you come out of surgery, and you're lying on your back there, and you're speaking to the nurse, I didn't feel as mentally sharp as I normally do, unsurprisingly. I didn't find that easy. 
I mustn't trust in my mental capacities. I'm not going to win you for Jesus because I have a Cambridge PhD. That's not going to win you to Jesus. Who cares? What matters is Jesus is the king. I've got to trust him and his spiritual power to persuade you of his reality. Same with you maybe about money. You look at the stocks right now and you think, well, they're not quite as good as they were in December. Maybe it makes you anxious. But we're not to trust in chariots. And for many Christians today, that translates to not trusting in politics or politicians. This king is not the Queen of England. And this king is not the President of the United States or the, uh, the, the Senator of Illinois or uh, the mayor of this city. Our trust is not in them. Now, I'll never preach politics from this pulpit one way or the other because that's not my task. My task is to preach the gospel. And, of course, it is important that you develop in your own mind a, a conscience and a biblical clarity about who to vote for. It's part of your responsibility as a citizen of this country, of course. But our trust is not in human kings, human presidents. Look, let, let me quote to you from D.L. Moody. No relation, by the way. D.L. Moody, I'm going to quote from him for a long time ago because this obviously is before the culture wars. Listen to what D.L. Moody said. If the question, this is him preaching, if the question could be put to a popular vote, I do not believe a single state would vote for the coming of Jesus to reign here as he reigns in heaven. He carried on. I do not believe a single county, a single ward in this city, I suppose he's thinking of Chicago, or a single precinct in this country would vote for Jesus' coming again. And then he made it very specific. Listen to what he said. The Republican Party would vote for the biggest blackguard. That's a 19th century word for criminal. The Republican Party would vote for the biggest criminal on earth rather than for Jesus. And then as he was an equal opportunity offender, he said, the Democrats would vote solidly against Jesus. He carried on, even the prohibitionists, those people who were against um, selling of alcohol, of course, the, the, even the prohibitionists wouldn't want Jesus here. And then he must have looked out at his congregation and realized that his rhetoric had lost some of them. And so he said this, I see some of you shaking your heads. And then he said, well, shake them. I'm talking facts. Do we really think that the President of the United States will save us? What nonsense. Do, do we really think that the Queen of England will save us? What nonsense. That's, he's not our king. She's not our ultimate queen. The king is there in the context of King David and is the ki King Jesus. That's our trust. And when they come around, and as whenever the next election comes around, they're trying to persuade you that life and death hangs on who you vote for. You know it's not true. Life and death hangs on who you trust. 
And his name is to be Jesus if you're to be saved. Don't trust in chariots, money, wealth, health, politics. Who trust in? Trust in Jesus. He wants us from his holy heaven. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. And of course, the name there doesn't just mean his actual name. It's not some sort of magical token. The name of the Lord our God. The name means the summation of all his character and virtues, everything that represents who God really is. And we know, those of us who believe in Jesus, know that Jesus represents and is all that God is. He's, he's the expression and the reality of God himself. He is the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was, was God, and the Word was with God, and, and the Word has become flesh and dwelt among us. Through Him, everything was made that has been made. He's God. That's the name of the Lord our God we need to trust. And, of course, what that means, especially in our day-to-day is, and again, I'm going to quote from something a little time ago to make it real but not unnecessarily controversial. So many Christians today have got wrong-headed in their thinking about this with all the sort of celebrity culture and the, and, and the un, unfortunately, the scandals around some celebrity preachers. Listen to this from the 1880s, a long time ago, to make the point. During the 1880s, a group of American ministers visited England, prompted especially by desire to hear some of the celebrated preachers of that land. Notice that word celebrated. There were celebrity preachers then too. On a Sunday morning, they attended the city temple, this was in London at the time, where Dr. Joseph Parker was the pastor. Most of you never heard him before, but at the time, he was famous. Some 2,000 people filled the building, and Parker's forceful personality dominated the service. They said his voice was commanding, his language descriptive, his imagination lively, and his manner animated. I love that. He must have waved his hands around a lot. The sermon was scriptural. The congregation hung upon his words. And the Americans came away saying, quote, What a wonderful preacher is Joseph Parker. In the evening, they went to hear Spurgeon at the Metropolitan Tabernacle, of course, also in London at the time. The building was much larger than the city temple, and the congregation was more than twice the size. Spurgeon's voice was much more expressive and moving, and his oratory noticeably superior. But... They soon forgot all about the great building, the immense congregation, and the magnificent voice. They even overlooked their intention to compare the various features of the two preachers. And when the service was over, they found themselves saying, What a wonderful Savior is Jesus Christ. 
Don't trust in chariots. Trust in the name of our Lord, our God. Trust in King Jesus. And then (laughs) shout for joy. Verse 5, may we shout for joy over your salvation, over the victory. We rise and stand upright. We shout for joy. Eastern Europe is, of course, in the news at the moment. In 1989, December 1989, the president of Romania, he had been present there for a long time, uh, the dictator Ceausescu, I've never been to Romania. I've been to the Ukraine on a few times. I've never been to Romania, but Romania is a place that has some personal connection with me because my uncle was British ambassador to Romania. Ceausescu was the dictator there, and in December 1989, Ceausescu announced that it was as likely that apple trees would bear the fruit of pears as Romania would ever not be communist. But on December the 19th, 1989, the police went to arrest a pastor who had spoken out against Ceausescu and the brutal regime. The pastor's name was Laszlo Tokes. His church got wind of the fact that they were going to arrest him, and they gathered outside his apartment, hundreds of them, to protect him. One young man, a young Baptist worker, 24 years of age, had the idea of passing out candles, and the Christians there, one by one, lit the candles and stood to protect their pastor. The police opened fire, and that young man who had had the idea about passing out the candles was shot and taken to hospital and injured so badly that he had to have his leg amputated. The pastor, Laszlo Tokes, went to visit him in hospital, and the young man said this, I've lost my leg, but I'm so happy. I was the first to light the candle. We have a king. His name is Jesus. Whatever comes our way, whatever kind of day of trouble, we have the victory secure and certain, and therefore we rejoice. Let's pray together. Our Lord God, we thank you for this psalm. We thank you for its confidence, and we pray that that confidence would be ours as well. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.